Well, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Behind the Rail. I'm Erito Jackson, and always uh, we have Ken Eston here. Hi, and Ken Eston. Happy birthday, Ken. Thank you. All right. And uh, so, um, yeah, so let's just get it started. Let's All right. get into so, it, as they say. <laughs> we've been talking about, about writing for many hours on this show. I'd like to talk a little about, Erito, your, your early days in show business, a different kind of show business, entertainment. It was uh, sports. Yeah, so, yeah. It was, so tell us a little bit about, about your years as a skater. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, for, I don't know, I was a probably like, a, I was a skateboarder for many years, you know, I started probably when I was, I think, I don't know how old, probably second grade or something like that. And then, wow. yeah, I started pretty early, but I didn't really take it seriously. I just kind of rode around on my, on the, you know, like, I didn't know tricks or anything. I didn't know what a good board was or anything like that. And then, um, then it, you know, I got the bug. I was kind of into, B, it was like a toss up between BMX and skateboarding. And then um, BMX is kind of a, it's, they're both rugged sports, but like, I think yeah, yeah. I knocked myself out one time BMXing. So, wow. yeah, I tried to jump it- these staircase. You know, yeah, and I didn't know like you had to pull up on the bike, so I just rode into the staircase, like <laughs> Ooh, I just, just did a nosedive and like woke up um, with all these people around me, and like they're like, oh, you know, like you know, all I could, you know, all I was concerned about was my bike, but I had like this huge gash on my chin, and I don't think that really deterred me. I just, um, I was hanging out with some friends in the fifth grade, I think, I think in the fifth grade, like I was still a BMXer, and then. I was hanging out with some friends of mine and we were going home from a party and they, they were all skaters, you know, so there was always like two camps and I was pretty much by myself in the BMX camp, you know, and then mm. they had their boards with them. So I was like, Oh, let me try it out. I used to skate and stuff. And I ended up all like up a curb, like the first, you know, first night and everybody was just like with ballistic. They're just like, I can't believe you did that. You know, it's like, you just, so I don't know. I kind of just got started from there and just pretty much became consumed with skateboarding for Many so years it was just after. kind of natural. Did did somebody teach you? No, no. I mean, I I think like certain things were natural. I was always good at like, yeah, you know, alling high and stuff like that. You know, that's like the main fundamental. But um, you know, there's different variations. You know, there's people who ride ramps and stuff like that. Like that's their introduction into skateboarding. There was a ramp at my local roller skating rink when I was a kid, but um, in Denton, Texas. But um, I was kind of scared of heights, so I didn't really like riding the ramp too much. You know, it was too yeah. high for me. So I just uh, pretty much stuck to the streets and street skating became really popular at that time. So I just skated. Yeah. 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 I see it a lot. I see it in commercials and movies and television shows. Yeah. I've never, I've never seen in person. I see a lot of, we have a lot of skaters in my neighborhood, but they don't do anything tough. You know, they just pretty much just skate up and down hills. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. <laughs> Skateboarding yeah. is so difficult. It's like one of the most difficult things. I mean, it prepared me a lot for life and, you know, it definitely prepared me for, um, you know, I was thinking about this concept yesterday, which is like, I don't know, it's probably not worked out completely, but I think people, instead of aiming for success, they should aim to fail, you know, because if you fail a lot, then success is going to be a byproduct, you know, like an automatic byproduct, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, doesn't really ring as cool sounding. Yeah, I know what you mean. But, you know, there's more failure than success in, in sure. any pursuit. So mm-hmm. you got to accept that you got to have some failures. So if you can't handle the failures, get out of the game. You know, it's not, it's not your Yeah. Game. 
skating is definitely like that i mean like you're gonna fall like there's no like if you're afraid to get hurt or you know i mean there's within reason of course you know everybody even the best people are going to be cautious so they don't get hurt more often so they can do what they love to do but yeah i mean you get good to where you can get consistent stuff and get a lot of control but yeah you definitely get hurt a lot you know i mean i've been had my fair share of many many injuries over the years some that i'm still still feeling today price for right yeah yeah you know but you know i kept it going up until like i didn't skate like after i was sponsored for many years then i i kind of had like an early retirement because i blew my knee out but that's not really why I stopped skating. Once I had knee surgery, I was still, I started skating, you know, they said it would take me like a year to come back and I was skating back in like three months, not full, you know, but by six months I was already back to like normal, but just something kind of, huh? No, go ahead. I was just going to say something kind of happened to me. Like once I got hurt, Part of it was like, I didn't really have insurance, you know, so I had to get like a regular job so I could get insurance so I could get surgery. And that part of it, like getting hurt that badly, um, kind of made me feel like, why am I doing this? You know, like I'm not Mm -hmm. even really making that much money and I'm, I can't cover my medical expenses. So just kind of, you know, it was a different vibe. And then I remember once I'd already come back and everything, I was still skating. I was sitting in this parking lot with a bunch of kids and I think I was like 24 or 25. And I just remember thinking, I don't want to be 30 sitting in, my, in a parking lot with a bunch of kids, you know, like it just mm. kind of, and I'm not knocking it. I mean, I started skating again later after like college and everything just to kind of exercise and have fun, but I still mm. love it. I still like watch skating. I was just watching skating earlier and I still talk to some of my friends who are still in the industry and everything so do you skate at all anymore no i mean i haven't i tore something in my knee like um not the knee surgery but like something recently like in the last four years i on a really like basic low trick i just kind of hung up weird and like tore i got like a bucket tear and Mm. and so that took a little while and you know i just um you know i don't know i just don't do it as much as I'd like. I've been thinking about like going out and skating or building a ramp at my house or something, but I just mm-hmm. haven't really done it. Yeah. It's funny because I, th- I do think of it as a very dangerous sport. Even when I'm, when I'm watching people going downstairs and mm-hmm. across uh, rails and stuff. Oh, yeah. That stuff's like the most dangerous part. It's the most dangerous? I mean, I, you know, like I was saying, there's levels. So like there's street skaters. Like I like ledges. I like flat ground. Like there's different things that obstacles basically that you can skate and some of the like i don't know like the skinnier kids i don't know like (laughs) there's like you know there became like factions where it was like punk kids did like rail skating and big gaps and then like the the hip-hop kids did like more technical skating and they skated ledges and stuff like that or you know like man more more of the technicals they're considered like they're both street street skating but you know like um I know it's just kind of a different vibe and you can blend the two. Some people are, are really good at doing technical stuff on really big shit. I didn't really skate big stuff. Cause I've always been like, I'm kind of a heavy person. Even when I was really skinny, I still probably weighed like if I'm really, really skinny, I probably still weighed like 175, 180, 185. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just you must yeah, have heavy bones. You got yeah. Bones. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when I land, it feels, I can feel it, you know, and like really? even, yeah, and the thing about skating, too, is I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, like, not too long ago, but 
you know, everything else in life or a lot of things in life, people are like, oh, it can't hurt if you try. And it's like, no, that in skating, it's like, that's the thing that can get you most fucked up is just giving it a shot. You know what I mean? You're better off trying to land it. Yeah. No, I, I could never do that. I, did you surf at all? I mean, there's some. Yeah, I did. Of, yeah, you did. After, like after skateboarding, yeah. I tried surfing. Yeah. yeah. How'd that go? It was good. I mean, you know, like I have more like balanced them you know, probably like some beginners, but mm. I have a wrist injury. So it made it really hard to push myself up, you know, and I was, mm. I was uh, surfing in Pacifica, like in, you know, Northern California, which is freezing yeah. cold weather. Yeah. So, um, the water is freezing. I used to think like, it felt like you're getting hit in the head with like a, a dry ice or something, you know, it's just wow. ridiculous. Yeah. And so I don't know, one time I was like, and I'm a really good swimmer. Like I was in, um, like a, kind of like a diving team when I was like really young you know I was like really into diving and stuff like that but um so I'm like used to being in the pool but it's totally different when you're in the ocean and um yeah one time I was out there I was surfing you know and like I got you just get exhausted it's a very exhausting because it's more of like upper body a very exhausting sport well sure you have I mean you always fight in the water too yeah it wants to pull you in or push you out or push you there or whatever yeah it's tremendous yeah. a lot of energy that you just to get up, you know, and then um, I remember just thinking like, oh, I could drown out here. Like, you know, I can't like I got like I had like a panic attack, like, oh, I don't want to drown out here. And then I, you know, I stood up and it was just a, like a little bit of a waist high, you know what I mean? But I was just like, all right, you know, and yeah. I don't know. I thought I was going to be a surfer, but I didn't get into it too much. Oh, that's funny. What, what other sports? Um, You know, like I pretty much was just into skateboarding, like skateboarders are like so secular that like and the era of skateboarding that i skated in which was like the late 80s early 90s early 2000s um when i was sponsored and everything that era of skateboarding is all about like hardcore like street cred like you just pretty much disassociate with society completely or at least that's how i perceived it to be and um so I didn't play any, like, I played soccer when I was real little, but I don't know. I wasn't, like, the fastest, you know, so they put me as fullback, and then my team was always winning, so I would just sit down on the, mm. <laughs> they would always be on the other side of the, you know, on the other side of the field, and I never really got a chance to get in the mix too much, so I got bored. Yeah. I was, I get, I used to get bored, like, really, really quickly. Well, I imagine you still get bored easily, because I don't know anybody who has so many projects going at once as you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I tend to do a lot of stuff, but you know, the thing about that, and we've, I, we talked a little bit about this before is everything has its own maturation rate. So like when something mm -hmm. kind of has a lull, then I'll get into something else. But yeah, I don't sit idle. Like I can't, I work seven days a week and I can't like remember the last time I just like laid around and watched like, I mean, even watching movies though, or something like that, you're studying, you know, as a writer, you know, like TV, it's like, you're watching it, but it's like you're thinking about all it's, you know, you're absorbing it, but it's not casual, you know. So, yeah, I, I tend to do a lot of things, but I like staying busy. Yeah, I know you. No, I really I'm impressed by that, that some um, I, I, I stay pretty busy myself yeah. uh, with um, with writing variations, like doing this with you and doing a, another script with somebody else and fixing, updating my old scripts, because you have to update them almost every six months or so because mm -hmm. not only does the technology change that you make reference to, yeah, the the forms changing where they're saying, well, we don't like it jokey so much. And I had a lot of 
manuscripts were very jokey in the when they first started out right and as as that has progressed to the point that they're more interested in attitude comedy and situational comedy rather than the jokes so mm -hmm. i've just gone back and and had to make some big changes i also had to change the language my i always worked on sitcoms so i was used to saying golly mm -hmm. <laughs> things like that you know it's funny got, wow yeah yeah I was going to say like last time we were talking because we were talking about the change in comedy and like how punch down comedy. I didn't even know that there was a thing as punch down, you know, like, but I worked at the ice house when I was living over there in, um, near Pasadena or whatever. And I, I was working at the ice house for a little bit. And um, this one of the girls that I worked at worked with me. She was a comedian and she was talking about how, how it's all about punch up comedy and mm -hmm. making everybody feel great about themselves and stuff like that. And we, actually had like such a different i'm not like you know the reason i brought this up is because i was where we i was talking last time about how like i'm not like good at like doing the back and forth like making fun of people like being mean or whatever like that's not really my thing i like comedy but i don't you know so anyway i guess that punch up comedy is all about uplifting people um, you know or yeah. something it's a different vibe but she had like yeah. a totally different take on like comedy itself and i was like was oh. she good did you did you see her act no i never saw her yeah so oh, i never saw her performance yeah uh, yeah I, I performed at the ice house i think i told you that I performed yeah did you there oh, okay yeah, you know you know weird thing happened oh here one of my stories is coming out of my head right now yeah <laughs> uh i was performing there and i wanted to sell something to to anybody in variety so i I called some people and then the people from Captain and Tennille, which was a television show called Captain and Tennille. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've seen it, but I definitely heard the name. Yeah. Well, they were, you know, they sang, he played the piano or an organ and she sang and they're really quite good, but uh, they got their own series and, and they were the hosts and I got their head writer to come out and see my act. Oh, really? Yeah, but, but at the end of the show, he just left. He never talked to me, nothing, never heard another word from him. Then on his show, they used some of my material. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. That was awesome of them. Yeah. <laughs> without, so paying, cool. <laughs> without paying me for it, they just stole it. They, he, he, he came out to see my show, and, and, and he rewarded me by steal, stealing my material. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, I had, you know, like, I've had similar things happen like that where people have taken things or like, you know, ideas I've had or, you know what I mean? And they don't ever give you credit or yeah. I actually had something like I was after, after college, you know, I was kind of like in between um, undergrad and grad school and I started filming skateboarding. Cause when I was younger, you know, like it's in the industry, you have like, you know, I call them dick writers or whatever. you like people who are like only like to work with, you know, they don't really want to invest in talent. They only want to like, you know, that's easiest to work with somebody who's already established. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So as a, as a, like, you know, an F you to them, like I, I went and like, you know, produced a skate video that was just regular kids that weren't like sponsored. And they were really, really, really good. They're super mm -hmm. good. And uh, we put that video out and um, on that video, two things happened. One thing is one of the kids got arrested and kind of got like, jacked up by the cop while he was wow yeah and he's like this little blonde kid and he was sticking up for somebody else that was like um 
mixed i don't know if he's mixed japanese and white or whatever but the cop was giving him a hard time about his name being japanese sounding he's like what kind of name is that like you know like really being a shit bag. Wow. yeah and the dude like the kid that said something about it um was like you're being a dick he said that to the cop and then the cop Ooh. comes over and he's like you know i'll break your arm like a twig and wrapped him up and arrested him right but this kid is wow. like he's he's not a he was like maybe like a five six you know, it's five, six, something mm. like that. Not a very tall kid. And he's like out of the group that we hung out with at that time. He's like the most modest, humble, quiet person. Like I was surprised that, you know, but certain things like injustices, like will spark rage in anybody and they don't yeah. care. Well, you know, David or Goliath, you know what I mean? Like they don't care what yeah. it is. And so, um, and my friend filmed it and my friend Polly and uh, shout out to Polly. And, um, mm. you know, so I edited it together and then that ended up making the news. So that was one thing that made the oh, news great. Yeah, from that video. And, you know, like actually in, later on that cop ended up resigning when they had that whole racist thing that went on in San Francisco, like not that like a couple years ago, maybe like yeah. 2014 or where he resigned because of other things. But I remember thinking like, oh yeah, of course, like, you know what I mean? Like, wow. and then another thing is I filmed this kid try a trick and then the board like bounced off the wall and like came back and hit him in the head. Like right when he's looking at the camera, you know? <laughs> and we, you know, we were talking the other day about how like, you know, comedy is like physical comedy. You see somebody get hurt. It's yeah. like, but it was hilarious, you know? It, well, it would be, I can see that being funny, but it was, it was he hurt? Uh, you know, he had a little gash on his head, you know, but you know, he's kind of playing it up for the camera, but that ended up on the Jay Leno show. You know, oh, wow. The opening monologue. Yeah. So that was kind of my like unofficial foray into, I how'd mean, I just, how'd you get that to Jay Leno? You just said, this is why I brought it up actually. Cause I didn't know, you know, like I had given it to Thrasher, which is this main skate mag, you know? So I gave it to oh. those guys to use and then somehow it ended up on fail blog and then some Adam Ray or some, you know, I just made the paces through the internet and then mm. somebody was like oh that's on the jay leno show and i was like oh wow. that's crazy it'd be cool if they would have let me know you know what i mean yeah do they pay you they did eventually you know what i mean but yeah, you know, yeah. kind of begrudgingly you know yeah. <laughs> well the the captain nil thing then got one step worse because uh the bit is one of the they actually only stole one big bit yeah and that was our closing number yeah so when we we were playing another place called the Mayfair Music Hall in Santa Monica. Right. It was like an old um, vaudeville house. It's gone now. They they turned it into shoe stores and oh, they made okay. a little mall out of it. Shoe yeah. store and clothing and whatever. But it used to be this great little old theater. And we were playing there to a full house. A lot of, it must have been like 250 people, which was pretty big for yeah. a place like that. And, um, they're loving our act, and then we come out, and then we do that closing number. Mm -hmm. Somebody actually stood up and yelled, "You stole that from Captain Tennille. Get your get something original." Oh, because you were doing your act. That... Yeah, we still did. We continued to do the the bit that they stole from us. Yeah, but this guy had seen it on Captain Tennille, and in his, in his mind, there's no way this little act really created this we're the right. little guys so we probably when we had to have stolen it from captain Sunil, but it was just the opposite so not yeah. only did captain Neil steal from us we had to take it out of our act because he, you know we had a hassle with people saying we were stealing from captain Sunil. right yeah you know and that it actually brings up a good point too because like we you know as writers or whatever you have to always kind of like guard your material you know because people Absolutely. say oh nobody has the time to steal your material and it's like that's bs like people will are lazy you know what i mean and if they feel like your material is good 
sometimes they'll just plagiarize it or they'll alter it you know but yeah because there's so many ideas out there it's hard to tell like you know it's all about execution but we've all we talk about that that um if you have an idea for a tv show or a movie or even an episode of a tv show uh you should write a treatment that's two or three pages and then register with the writers guild yeah before you mention it to anybody because there are people out there who will steal i mean don't you can't don't kid it you know there's no kidding anybody about that it's it's not paranoia thinking that things get stolen they do they get stolen Mm -hmm. all the time yeah um and they try to make it seem like, well, if you if you think somebody's going to steal, they're not going to work want to work with you. And it's like, well, I get like, if you walk around with a chip on your shoulder and you're like, looking, you know, if you're paranoid, you know what I mean. And you're thinking everybody's going to yeah. steal from you. You know, you got to be able to trust some people. You know what I mean. Obviously, but people but, steal. But you got to register it first. Register yeah. before you talk to it to anybody. Even even on this show, if we had an idea that we wanted to talk about, yeah. I wouldn't do it unless it's already registered because. You never know who's going to hear it and steal it. So, yeah, you shouldn't be paranoid because you have to pitch your ideas to as many people as possible. That's how yeah. you finally get it sold. But before you do that, register it. Just give yourself some protection. So. But I've heard that so much. Like, people are like, oh, you know, I pitched it to this person. They didn't like it. Next thing I know, that's the thing on air. Yeah. It's like verbatim. You know what I mean? I hear that, that, I hear that a lot. And I've seen it. Mm-hmm. I pitched this show to Disney about... Uh, magicians uh, a, a father magician who's teaching his children to be magicians and the mm-hmm. guy says well magicians you mean like doing card tricks and coins and no I said like you know wizards whatever yeah well, about a month later they did the wizard of wave Wa- the wizards of waverly place waverly place or something yeah mm-hmm. And it was exactly the same thing. It was a man teaching his children how to do magic, but they were wizards, not magicians. Mm-hmm. He liked to use the word magician, which was, a, I mean, wizard, which was more uh, current at the time. Yeah. It's the only change they made, and they just stole it. And when I called them about it, they said, well, you know, we have a lot of ideas in development. We can't tell you when you're pitching every time you pitch something we already have in development. He said, but we had it in development, and, you know, we didn't steal any ideas. And, and I didn't then go on to say, yes, you did, because I don't want, I want to work for them. So I said, yeah, okay, I just kind of wondered how that happened, that I talked to you one month and you turn it down, and the next month there it is in your development, uh, pro, you know, of shows you're going to put out. And then it goes on the air, and I don't get any credit. And he said, well, it was in development. It was in development with somebody else, and we just, we already no. had it. I'm sure that happens. Like there are similar out ideas out there, but usually, you know, like if a take is original, you know what I mean? And, and you know, actually I was going to ask you about, cause about originality. I mean, this is a slightly different topic, but you know, yeah. the idea is to like have an original voice, but I think in some ways that almost kind of scares people. It's like a weird double-edged sword. Like if you write something in a really original voice, then they think that's the only thing you're capable of. Or they're like, Oh, and, that's, you, and, yeah. and they don't get it very often. Yeah. I know you wrote something once for me when, when I was teaching a class that you were taking and it was really good, but it was really strange. Mm-hmm. You remember that one? <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds yeah. about right. <laughs> but it was good. I mean, I could tell that, that you had, you know, it all held together and, and it worked. It was entertaining, but I, I had no idea where you could market it. That's where mm-hmm. I felt. I think that's what I told you. I said, I yeah, don't know yeah. where to market this thing. Yeah. Uh, but those I was thinking maybe like adults or something, you know, like I that think was kinda... today 
yeah. I think today those those kinds of shows that I was more concerned with everybody doing the, the kind of show that's pretty traditional. Mm-hmm. And now traditional stuff's like nobody even wants to look at traditional stuff. So it it might be a good time to bring that piece out again and, and try and sell it. Yeah, I think out of the all the scripts I've read or written, I mean that's one you know you you kind of fall in love with each one of them. It's hard to like separate yeah. them and say because you like different things about different things, and you yeah. you grow as a writer, so you're like expressing something in a different way or whatever. But I really I've always loved that script, Plymouth Rocks. You know, it's pretty cool because yeah, I just like I, you know my idea was like there's not like you know like at the time I don't know if it was like out of step or whatever, but it was like my idea of like putting, you know, like Moby Dick or whatever, where it's like all races on the boat, you know, and like you're all, the only thing you're fighting is, you know, the giant whale or whatever. That was yeah. kind of like my idea is like, you know, they have to fight the elements and, you know, it's obviously like kind of definitely like absurdist humor, you know, like I really liked, some, yeah. you know, like early Woody Allen. I like absurdist humor, you know, that's kind of like a cool thing. I know Woody Allen's kind of, under the bus right now like you can't say that you enjoyed his work you have to forget your past that you actually had some enjoyment there but yeah. you know i did well, I, I liked it i like that kind of oddball stuff you know for sure but you know it was definitely well you should definitely think it's about kind it. of a love story i remember yeah. the time i liked it I, I told you i liked it i just didn't think it was commercial at all I yeah yeah sell it, so. but now like i think now like netflix you know like netflix could be like a place where they put that kind of thing on Absolutely. and it has like all you know like the whole thing is like everybody all the races are together you know what i mean like trying to make it happen in this new place you know but yeah i don't know yeah that'd be cool i mean i've always everybody was asking if it was going to be animated i thought of it as live action but then when i started thinking animated i was like oh, yeah, that could be cool yeah the good thing about animation is you can do anything you can you know you can make the world explode you can do mm-hmm. anything you want yeah it's totally. no more no more expensive than anything else you do than just having two heads talking basically yeah but in live action, boy, you make some big event like a, like a, a volcano going off. You're that's you know you've just screwed up your budget. That's mm-hmm. huge. I think originally when I wrote it, because it was in that your class that you were talking about, I wrote it as a multicam, you know, and I was thinking of it as in sets, you know, kind of like Green Acres or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know? and, yeah, and um, yeah, and then eventually I made it single cam. But you know, there is like there is something that kind of changed in the translation of the speed of the because multicam is very dialogue heavy you know mm-hmm. and then when you do single cam you're putting a lot of like descriptions a lot of action of, yeah, yeah a lot more action a lot more movement uh i i like single camera more i mm-hmm. i spent most of my career well i spent all of my career really like uh, on taxi and cheers and the tracy Ullman show and other shows like that they were all multiple camera mm-hmm. and uh, i got used to that form but now as a just as a as an observer as a viewer i prefer the single camera stuff i i like the movement i like the, the you don't stay in one set for very long before you mm-hmm. move on to something else that you don't have to have a big joke at the end of your scene mm-hmm. because it's like you're on stage and there's gonna and, this, and lights are gonna black out and then come up on the next spot you can just cut to boom you're someplace else right it doesn't, it doesn't matter you didn't have a joke on the end of right the previous scene so Tracy Ullman was multi-cam. I thought that did they? She did a lot of skits, like skits and stuff, right? Yeah, they they were all yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it was, it was it... all it was all sketch comedy. The whole thing was um, she would sing and dance and do funny little sketches and and uh, 
I totally remember that when I was when yeah. I was younger. I watched that show. That was like one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Like it was it was only on for a little while, you know what I mean? But yeah, it was really only on for it. four years, and and the only reason it was taken off the air was because Jim Brooks, who was one of the creators and mm. had by far the biggest percentage. I was one of the creators too, so we all had a piece of it. But there were four of us, and Jim had twice as much as any one of us mm-hmm. uh, shares, and Jim. Uh, spun off the Simpsons from the Tracy Ullman show and it was going through the roof making so much money and so successful that he didn't want to spend any time on Tracy Ullman so he canceled it Tracy to this day hates Jim Brooks oh, <laughs> I really like that show it was very it was original a really good show it was original yeah. we had really good people on it we had great writers and, and great actors and, and, and really uh, outstanding uh, directors and the whole thing came together so well. We, the first two years we were on, we won uh, best uh, variety show. You know, mm-hmm. the first two years, and uh, but we only went four years, and Jim pulled the plug on it. Our, the guy pulled. That rarely happens when something can continue to go on, and your own people pull the plug mm-hmm. on your mm-hmm. project. So everybody was kind of mad at Jim, but Tracy Allman was the angriest because that show was perfect for her talent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do all these different sketches. She got to sing, she got to dance, and and, and it was doing well, and she's winning awards. Mm-hmm. And Jim pulls the plug on it. Yeah, I mean, she wanted to, you know, dance on his head from that for that, you know, dance on his face or whatever. You know, <laughs> it's a bit odd though. Yeah, so like, it's not, you know, like you don't want to have too successful. I mean, he's very successful, obviously. You know, he's got kind of a Midas touch in his vision of different things, but yeah, like you. Like it's not it doesn't hurt to have another show that's successful and well he didn't think he, he he want he didn't he doesn't like shows that that he creates or he's involved in the creation of to go off in a direction he doesn't like so he mm-hmm. wants to control mm-hmm. and he couldn't put in enough time on both shows plus he was doing a movie he's always doing a movie too mm-hmm. so he just didn't have time so he's to give himself more time he took out the least um, lucrative project we weren't making much money where he's making money hand over fist with the simpsons it was just it was just yeah i mean that's a cultural trucks yeah yeah just truckloads of of cash on his on his lawn practically still right still to this day still to this day i i always mention sam simon who was my partner for two years on in sitcoms yeah uh worked on the simpsons for one year he worked on it but he helped develop the form of the show he and jim brooks are more responsible for the look of the show than matt graney although matt did design the characters mm-hmm. the actual way the show would be run and executed and, and the style and the form and the uh the 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 pace and the rhythms and everything were jim brooks and and uh sam simon and they fired Sam after the first year because he couldn't get along with Matt. He and Matt would argue and fight all the time. So they finally mm-hmm. fired him after the first year. But Sam kept a percentage of the merchandising. And in those days, they didn't care about merchandising because they had no shows merchandising. So mm-hmm. when Sam and the other creators said, we want a piece of the merchandising, they said, fine, no problem. You know, we sell yeah. a few t-shirts here and there yeah uh, shows like mash or whatever you know so right. t-shirts for it. and then it went through the roof they had simpsons everything video oh, games, yeah pinball machines toothbrushes shoes, socks, everything yeah everything yeah. 
Skateboarding, and, yeah, for sure, it was huge. And Sam Simon told me that he was making. I forgot how many. So he he ended up he he stopped working on the show and was making about ten million dollars a year. So mm-hmm. he worked on one season, left the show, and for the next thirty years made ten million dollars a year. Damn, that's a sweet gig, man. That's pretty crazy. And that started yeah. out on the show that were you running Tracy Ullman at the time, or you, you, I you was. co-created? I, I co-created and I and I was co-running the Tracy Ullman show, but I also had another project going somewhere with Jim on on a feature. So Heidi Perlman was doing most of the day-to-day running of the show, and then the rest of us, myself, Jerry Belson, Jim Brooks, yeah. we would come in and, and help for many days at a time, but not be there the whole five days that, that, you know, you put it together. Yeah. And, uh, I got into big fights with them that, that we made a deal that the deal was like, I, I was taking less money so I could work on something else. Mm-hmm. And then they would always say, you're not putting enough time in on the Tracy Ullman show. And you know every, that came from everybody. It came from Jim Brooks and, and Richard Sakai and all these people who forgot. And I'd say, look at the contract. I'm only supposed to be here uh, something like two days a week, but I'm coming in four days a week. And you want me to come in five days a week and work weekends. Mm-hmm. I'm, you're not paying me for that. Look at the deal you made for me. And it all oh, you prima donna. And they wouldn't look at the deal. They'd call me a prima donna. And then all of a sudden, and we got hassled. So I finally left the show. And the, it was the third year I said, I've had enough of this. And I left. Mm. Um, but I never got a piece of. The, I I actually did get a piece of the Simpsons, but I sold it when I left. I sold it back to them for a, a good amount of money, but a very very tiny portion of what I would have earned had I kept it. How did that come about? Because I remember the Simpsons. You know, it was that crudely drawn kind of character. You know, it was very different at the time. You know, and especially. I mean, what a great platform! You have a variety show. They have very odd characters and tracy ullman and she went on to do um what is it um uh, something tracy on yeah HBO. tracy t- tracy takes on that's right um, something like tracy takes on manhattan or something what, what was i it? think it was tracy I takes on actually and oh, then like every on. episode would be like the thing she takes on you know oh yeah 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 that and that was good you know that that was that worked you know but that was probably like somewhere around like what she was doing with the show that you were working on right like that she was doing her characters and you know this one's probably a little bit more pronounced, but you know, yeah. such an odd show and especially for a female comedian, right? Like you don't have that many platforms for some, uh, for females to just do characters playing male characters. Yeah. You know? it was, yeah. She should do a woman. She do a man. She would do a, a teenager and, and they were all believable. She was wonderful yeah. in the part. Yeah. But, but she's still to this day, she's pissed at me because she always thought I was because I was Jim's partner she thought I was part of the the deal to, to tear it down, to, you know, to, to pull the plug on it. Yeah, she, she's mad at me. She's mad at Jim Brooks. She's mad at Heidi Perlman and all of us yeah. who were working on it. But we, none of us, we all got screwed. <laughs> the only one who turned did well was Jim Brooks mm. uh, and and Sam Simon. Sam Simon passed away a few years ago, so his mm. wealth wasn't able. He wasn't able to spend much of it in his lifetime. So. I think he had a good run though, right? Of trying to spend it. Like, didn't, <laughs> didn't he, he do did. pretty good? You know, he you spent said 10 million for 30 years or something. He only worked one season. I mean, that, you know, you get a chance to spend some of that. You know what I mean? I think he, he did. He, he, he uh, started a, um, a, a dog rescue 
um, group. That's cool. It was very nice. Yeah. And he also, I think he left all his money when he passed away to the dog rescue group. All and you guys were writing partners when originally all this stuff was going on with the, did he work with you on no, the Tracy Ullman show or? No, no, no. He's, he's my writing partner for uh, two years on a pilot we did together. That's mm. all. I, most of my career, I was solo, you know, by far, except for those two years. And I worked yeah. for about 35, 40 years in the business. And those two years with Sam were really difficult because Sam's a very difficult, was a very difficult guy, but very talented guy. And so mm -hmm. I, I would put up with the difficult part because he was so talented. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the Simpsons came about because they were bumpers for the Tracy Ullman show. They were just a very tiny part of our show. Yeah. Very crude drawings at the time. Very crude. They, they fixed the drawings up somewhat, but they mm -hmm. kept the, the primary idea of, of everybody having an overbite. Everybody mm -hmm. had an overbite. I don't know why. I don't know how he thought of that, that. That that would catch on. That every single character, no matter what their facial presentation might be, had to have an overbite as well. Mm -hmm. And they were yellow, or they were some other color. It was just bizarre. It was really bizarre. So you probably would have loved it in those days because you liked that kind of stuff in those days. Uh, I watched it. I remember I watched the Tracy Ullman show when I was younger, but you, oh, um, oh, you remember when he didn't even do good joke. You know, I, I don't mean to put Matt down because he did create something that made him, has made him a billionaire and yeah. made billions and billions for the studio. Mm -hmm. But he, uh, he, the characters weren't drawn that well, but mm -hmm. the overbite and the basic look of the characters he did create. Mm -hmm. But he, when he did the bumpers for the Tracy Ullman show, they were all very predictable, simple little jokes. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that made it special was that the way the, their look, the look was the only thing that made it special because um, they just do something like, like Homer would be he, running a stick across the bars where the gorillas are. Mm -hmm. And just when he gets to the end, when he's running the stick, it's the doors open and mm -hmm. he looks at the gorilla, the gorilla looks at him. Next scene, he is, you know, he's, he's just torn up pretty badly. Wasn't and, it like Bart would like open the gate or something like that? Like, didn't they have that kind of rivalry probably, where he would probably like bring Bart his neck? Would have done yeah. It, yeah. But I'm, I'm saying they weren't like, they weren't big jokes. There was also mm -hmm. a joke, which I hated where little Maggie put her, um, her fork into a lock, into a light socket, mm -hmm. an electrical socket. And it shocked her so bad that she smoked, she was smoking. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny, but it was terrible. I told him I didn't want him to put it on the air because I thought kids might do that. You just thought it was irresponsible. I thought it was irresponsible. And yeah. what happened was little Maggie did that when she was shocked and it looked like it almost killed her. Mm -hmm. Instead of her being scared or crying, she was delighted and she stuck it in again. Mm -hmm. And that was his joke again. And I, I actually at that point said, I don't want to do this joke. I think it's irresponsible to show a kid putting something into an electrical outlet. Right. Jim Brooks came down on me so hard. He and Matt and everybody said, you know, if you're, are you an artist or are you some kind of sellout? Mm. I said, I said, I'm thinking about saving lives possibly or saving severe damage. You understood That's the responsibility of like what you were airing. I thought yeah. I thought I I always have felt responsible for what I create. Jim Brooks doesn't. Jim Brooks thinks art is art, mm. and, and everybody else has to look out for themselves. So you mm. throw the art out there any way you want, mm -hmm. and if it's going to have a bad effect, somebody has to come along and undo that. But he's not going to. 
he's mm-hmm. on to his next piece of art, which could be just as damaging. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Jim Brooks, uh, obviously, from this, except he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. So the same thing about Sam Simon. Didn't get along well with people, but was a, was a wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. Jim Brooks, same thing. Wonderful writer, brilliant creator. But he didn't seem to care. He didn't seem to care about the effect of his work on, in a responsible way. He cared about how artistically people perceived him and if they enjoyed his work. The but quality thought, of the content, yeah. He thought I was a hack because... I would censor my own work when mm-hmm. I thought it was dangerous. He mm-hmm. said, you don't do that. You do the best joke, the best moment, and you don't care if it's dangerous. And I, I still to this day disagree with that. I don't think you have no responsibility as a creator just because art. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I disagree with that. But uh, Jim's worth several billion, and I'm worth about $10. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, you know, I mean, did it? In, Matt Groin did, like um, – you know what was it? Life in Hell. That's what I remember. The, the like that book was it. That I'm surprised had. you remember that. Life in Hell. Yeah. Was, yeah. The whole story. Uh, you're good at prompting me for remembering these things. Um, yeah. Life in Hell was a, a a cartoon that he drew for for throwaway or free newspapers. Right. And he'd put his little boxes. He'd have like a three or four box. I think my cartoon. mom or something like that was. I knew about that you know separately i didn't know that it was the simpsons creator or anything i just remember i think maybe i got one of those books for my birthday or something like that oh, oh yeah yeah he yeah. sold little books for those too yeah but it was just like a comic book right yeah it was you know i remember it had a glossy cover that and i just remember the character had the big ears and kind of like yeah, an overbite yeah. you know very well, and, some, and, somewhat similar and only had, it was a rabbit only had one ear do you remember yeah that? yeah so he did his life in hell thing, and that's what I saw. I saw the life in hell thing, and I'm the one who said, "Hey, we should use this guy for our bumpers because he his stuff is really different." Right. And so everybody agreed. We brought Matt in. Matt, uh, the, Matt, Matt's a, an unusual man. And Matt came in and said, uh, when they said they wanted a piece of, they wanted to do the life in hell characters, they wanted mm-hmm. a piece of of the merchandising he would share merchandising with everybody else but it was mm-hmm. now the merchandising would belong to fox mm-hmm. he walked he mm-hmm. said i'm not going to do this goodbye i don't want to do this project and he mm-hmm. left mm-hmm. today matt could be the guy still writing little comics for for throwaway newspapers except and i never get credit for this is that i one day said what happened to matt graney he was doing really interesting stuff and we had two artists doing these bumpers. We'd switch from week to week. Mm-hmm. The other one was doing a psychiatrist who was really strange. A very strange psychiatrist. Was Wasn't the critic, also. right? Was it that? Did it become the critic? Or not the critic? No, later on, we did a show called The Critic that was also anime. But this was just okay. a psychiatrist who, I think she talked in, in, in clicks and stuff. She had weird, did she have weird hair? And like the, it was like, kind of yeah. like, it moved around a lot? Yeah, like, I think so. I think like the I drawing's kind of j- yeah. jittery or something. But it wasn't funny. It was kind of interesting to look at, but it was never funny. So mm-hmm. I said to them, "Look, that Mac, that Matt guy had a, had something. How did we lose him?" And they said, "Well, he doesn't want to give merchandising." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, I somehow they they thought I had when since I'm the one who who saw the cartoon of Life in Hell and mentioned the guy, they thought that's what I had wanted." I said, "I I want the guy. I don't want his Life in Hell characters." Mm-hmm. So, I, so I said, maybe he has, he'll just tell him to come up. Maybe he's got one already. The, the ready, and other characters to go. You, you can't just dismiss the guy because he won't give you the merchandise on you know, something he already owns. Right. So 
that's all I know. From that point on, I, I, I just disassociated myself. It was where I was having trouble with Jim Brooks and them and all about not putting in enough hours on something that was in my contract that I could do. I, I left. Uh -huh. But what end, ended up happening is Matt showed up. They, they told Matt, Matt, come bring him in other characters. And Matt showed up in Jim's office with The Simpsons the next uh -huh. day or the next day. Matt tells the story. He says he was waiting a long time for Jim in the office and he just decided to sketch these characters uh -huh. just off the top of his head and then went in to talk to Jim. That may be what happened. They may have set up a meeting with, with him and he may have gone in without any characters uh -huh. and then sat out there in the waiting room. Jim liked to keep you waiting for an hour or two. So I waited once for three hours for him for a meeting. Was this but like a power I, play? This kind of, what was that about? I don't know why he did, he did that. He was he just so people. busy that like he didn't, you know, it took He was a while. very busy, but you still don't keep somebody waiting for three hours who's, who's run Taxi and Cheers and is running your show now. I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't like I was just, you know, a fan out there waiting for his autograph. Mm -hmm. Three hours, a long time to wait. But anyhow, so Matt was probably waiting for an hour, maybe longer. And he, and he wrote, he, apparently he drew The Simpsons then. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said it's because he had already had them in his head. He already knew them. He may have already even drawn them somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they were based on his own family. Homer's his father, whose name is Homer. Uh -huh. uh, and, and all the characters are based on characters in his life. So it was really an easy, no, a no-brainer thing for him. He didn't put a lot of creative effort into this thing. And then, so he wrote these characters in the office waiting room, went in, showed them to Jim. Jim said, that, those are fine. Those are good. Uh -huh. And so then we started doing the, the Simpsons on the Tracy Ullman show. I heard a rumor a long time ago, and I don't know if it's confirmed or not, but the reason that Bart skated is because Matt uh used to live next to a pro named frank harada and he would be out skating and so that's oh. where that that's what i heard i don't know if that was ever true but i mean or maybe it was ocean how maybe um i don't know one of those guys one of those guys yeah, that i grew up guy. watching yeah yeah but that's the funny thing about it. matt matt just kind of does what he sees he just mm -hmm. so he knew of skaters so he made the kid a skater he he, he named the people after his family he made them his family he, he made all the characters I don't, I'm not putting him down at all for that. I'm just saying it's it's interesting that something that's just kind of thrown together became the biggest money maker in the history of television. Mm -hmm. No show has made more money than The Simpsons. Yeah, and it's run for 32 years now or something, and he just threw it together in the office after I saved his ass by asking that they bring him back and have him draw other characters. But when he tells the story, he leaves me out, and when others tell the story, they leave me out. And I anything I've ever read about The Simpsons never mentions me uh -huh. and and it wouldn't the simpsons never would have existed without me uh -huh. i never get any credit or money for it so. yeah but you said you had some shares in that and then you i had a i had i had some i had a small sh i had a share in in uh, one share which is not much uh -huh. but it was adjusted gross so it was a big deal it wasn't a net thing that, that i'd get money after they took off all their expenses it was a gross uh -huh. point so it was a big point yeah it was worth probably, you know, given what the show made, I don't know, it might have been worth $50 million today, mm -hmm. but I sold it for half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. Which is still a super chunk, but what? at what point in that lifespan of the show did you end up getting rid of that share? Was it early on or? Yeah, it was early on. When, when I was having trouble because they wanted me to work for days that they weren't paying me for because mm -hmm. of what I had asked for my contract, I finally left and uh, 
and I think that at that time we really had we really hostile. Everybody was hostile with everybody else. And and uh-huh. parent and Fox called me up and they did one of the bullshit manipulations. They called me up and said, "Look, everybody's angry. Everybody's having a problem with this." I was threatening to sue them because they were merchandising and they weren't giving the same money from the merchandising yet. Uh-huh. And I said, let's just look, why don't you just take yourself out of the picture and, and make life easier for yourself. And we only want to do this because we want to be friends with you. We don't want this fight to go on so that we can all be, uh, get along and we can all be uh, friendly and work together. Why don't you just sell us your share? It's not going to be worth much because it shows it's merchandising now, but it, you know, you know, night uh, adult uh, uh, animation does all right. And the Flintstones a long time ago did great, but there's been nothing since. Yeah. It's really a long shot, and we're willing to give you half a half a million dollars for this. Mm-hmm. And I believed them. I thought they were really trying to do it to do me a favor. What happened? The truth was they had already done all the testing, and they were looking at the marketing, and they saw how it was going through the roof. They, oh, they had the projections and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. They had everything. I only found this after the fact from mm-hmm. from a lawyer who who did some research when I was still going to sue and then I didn't. Mm-hmm. But um, then they bought me out, and, and I thought they were really doing it to, for goodwill. They said we're going to pay you half a million dollars for your one percent of just mm-hmm. the gross of the show. And so the, here's the weird part. I think they paid me six hundred thousand. Actually, it was more than half a million. Uh-huh. but then they said we had agreements in the contract that said if you got such and such back on your merchandising the blah 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 and they ended up only giving me some, about like 300,000 of it uh-huh. Uh-huh. so I only really got 300,000 of, of the Simpsons that should have been about 50 million is there a way now that you think about it to where you could have I mean I'm sure you probably thought about it but like that you could have known that they were doing projections is this stuff like super tight-lipped that you don't tell anyone you don't have any idea how to like i should have hired like a private detective or 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 lawyer who does investigations i should have really looked into it but i i was naive and simple and when they offered me half six hundred thousand, i guess for my for my simpsons and my tracy allman to, uh-huh. to wipe me completely out of the scene uh-huh. and i thought you know, this is going to make peace. We'll get along. We'll do other projects. I didn't expect the Simpsons to be monster hit, uh-huh. but I didn't know they knew it was already destined to be a big hit. They didn't know it was going to be the monster, incredible thing it turned into, but they knew it was going to be big hit. And giving me half a million dollars was a huge uh, coup for the lawyers who did that. And I'm sure they got all kinds of rewards and accolades for screwing the little guy for the uh-huh. corporation, uh-huh. which they did. I don't know how you have a job like that where you know you're going to twist the truth to take money from an individual to to serve the studio, the corporation, mm-hmm. and then they all they get their accolades, maybe a a raise, you know, I don't know who knows a bonus or something, but they stole they stole like a, a, whole, a whole life from you know a different lifestyle for me. I would be a very rich man now. I'm I'm comfortable because I, I I have my writer skilled stuff and i have residuals and i have things uh-huh. it's not like i i need money but i'm not a multimillionaire, which i should have been uh-huh. yeah i mean and, and lawyers are known for being morally ambiguous i mean they you know they kind of always uh you yeah, know float true. the line there so yeah and i mean that's good actually sold me out my own lawyer sold me out because he's the one who said 
he's the one who went to them, I believe, though he never admitted it and said Ken's, Ken's vulnerable enough for being bought out because he, he got a percentage also. Mm-hmm. He got a third. So yeah, he, so he's self-motivated. So he, when we, after I paid him what I had to pay him, really, I ended up with about $200,000 left after that, of that 600, after I paid everybody off and paid things back and whatever. I ended up with about $200,000. Had they offered me $200,000, I wouldn't have taken it. Mm-hmm. But they offered me six and then they just kept, they just scraped it all out. And, and I only had two left at the end. And then I thought of suing him and I thought of suing my lawyer. I was so mad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, did that? Did you end up? Did it smooth things over though, so that you were able to work on other projects, or you know, how did that kind no, of transpire? No, it didn't smooth anything out because um, they had no intention of smoothing it out. And Jim Brooks still was angry at me because I I, I did file a lawsuit during that period, mm-hmm. and he never forgave me, and it still will not forgive me for suing it, even though I dropped the lawsuit and didn't. I didn't ever took him to court. I just filed it. He got mm-hmm. the lawsuit, the document that said he's being sued. Mm-hmm. And then I dropped it when they bought me out. And, and uh, so he never had to deal with it. He still hates me for it. This is the business side of show business that people often don't hear about, you know, especially with huge numbers. I mean, huge numbers and a huge, you know, huge properties, right? So you know, everybody nowadays, they hear stuff on the internet and they're like, oh, you got to own, inter- you know, the, the intellectual property. And, you know, people are trying to vie for better status or position now because they have seen people go through these different things, which it's good for people mm-hmm. to understand. Like, yeah, you can right. get royally screwed. You That's know? why I think it's good for, for our listeners to, to hear this and know you cannot trust anybody. When they come to you and they say, we're your best friends, we're, we're doing you a favor by buying you out. It's probably a really good sign that you better get a you should get a lawyer and look really closely at what they want to do. Nobody really wants to help you. Everybody wants to make money for themselves. Yeah, and, you know. And once you start talking millions and millions, then people like really become, yeah, you know, the lifestyles of rich and famous start ringing in their heads or something, you know, and they start thinking like, well, I could do this. I mean, I don't know what people imagine, you know what I mean? But when it comes to big money or even, you know depending on what level you're at in life and where you are, your station, depending on those things, you know, $5 or a hundred million dollars, you know what I mean? People will do all kinds of crazy shit just for a couple. Yeah, I know. It's it's what people do for, for money is crazy, but I went through a period of, um, it actually depressed me for a while. It made me angry and depressed. And I I actually went to therapy for a while because I was so outraged that, that then I saw all the numbers and I saw all the research they had done and I saw this thing is going to be monstrous. Uh-huh. And, and they, they tricked me. They tricked me into selling and they did it in a way that, 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 I, that I had no recourse. They did, you know, I sold without, they didn't coerce me to sell. They just lied to me. And then later on when we brought it up to them, they said, we're not going to ever admit what we said to you. So it's going to be your word against ours. And we're, believe me, we're not going to ever say we told you the show wasn't going to make much money, even mm-hmm. though they did tell me that. Yeah. So yeah. I was going to ask like how it affects you emotionally, you know, going through that process of having to like sue your old partners and stuff like that. Does it, did it, how, how did it affect your creativity? I mean, did it really 
did it put a hand? I mean, because you said you went to therapy, so I, I and you're yeah, creative I now. Therapy. I mean, you're you're you seem like you've always been creative, but did it? Did you write stories where you're, you know, having your characters are, you know, um, I, getting I, I wrote, some comeuppance or something? <laughs> yeah, know, I wrote things like that. Where, where where Bart Simpson stabs Jim Brooks, <laughs> you know, stuff, the foot yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because no, no. you know, like as a writer, you know, like. You're not you typically like a, you know, like walking around with a, a big bat. You know what I mean? We're kind of a mild breed, you know, in some regard. Uh, absolutely. So, so those of you who are who are going to listen to this and make yourself a career in the business, be cautious. Even when you're making a lot of money, invest well because when you hit a certain age, they just stop wanting you like at 52 the writers guild gives you your pension at 52 who gets pension at 52 it's because at 50 they stop wanting to meet with you anymore and they won't admit that there's ageism they just won't meet with you when you hit about 50 so say you're 35 and and you hit is while you're working save your money invest your money do good things with your money because you only have about 15 years so i mean but you you still work on projects. You still have stuff that you're working on, and you've had other things produced since then, right? So yeah, no, I I didn't quit working. I I after that I did um, I I did a couple pilots that got on the air, and some mm -hmm. pilot that that didn't get on the air because my partner told the studio people to go fuck themselves, which mm -hmm. he, which was I heard that usually helps. Like if you have a disagreement with. The studio heads and, or, you know, anybody who's got a lot of clout and some position, the best thing to do is just tell them to fuck themselves yeah. and kind of go off into a rage as quickly as possible. Just so you show them like who's boss. Yeah. That's another lesson for everybody here. I, I, I want to point out these lessons that I learned from. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. never tell anybody to go fuck themselves except maybe your spouse. Yeah. Because they come back and get you. You know, they, they, they control the purse strings, which which controls the money, which really controls the show. And you show them disrespect, they get you. Yeah. On they did that with, they did the Jim Brooks too on uh, Taxi. We only ran five years. And, but, but, um, um, Cheers ran for 12 years. The only reason we ran five years when we, we were much more successful early on than they were is because Jim Brooks treated them really badly. He treated the network really badly and they hated us, but they couldn't get rid of us because we were winning awards and we had good numbers. Mm -hmm. But they eventually, the way they did that is they moved us into a really bad time slot saying, we want you to build up that time slot because you're such a good show with such great numbers and awards and success. We're going to put you in this terrible time slot where nothing ever succeeds mm -hmm. and you can turn that into success for us. That was their way of getting rid of the show. Mm -hmm. And Jim Brooks, mm -hmm. because Jim Brooks treated them so bad. I never, never worked on another show where the the studio people were treated so poorly. They couldn't, re they couldn't see outlines. They couldn't see our upcoming uh, script plans. They couldn't give us notes. So was that part of it though, to try to like shield the creative process? Because you were saying is more into the artistic slants of it. The you know being an artist, you do have to shield yourself from you know, having too many chefs in the kitchen, you know, that Absolutely. kind of thing. Absolutely. I, I, that'll yeah, kill I it. That'll kill inspiration right away. 
I benefited from that, that, yeah. that Jim Brooks did that it was wonderful for those of us who were writing on the show, but it got him canceled after five years where he could have run for 12 or more years as like Cheers had he not been so offensive to the to the people in power. Yeah. So he, he screwed it for everybody. We all lost our jobs then too. So ultimately telling people to go fuck themselves uh, is always hurt you. And so anytime you get mad and you just need to vent your anger at them, don't. Yeah. I know you need, you feel you need to, but venting your anger could cost you millions of dollars. It's just not worth it to tell somebody to go fuck themselves. If that costs you a series or a pilot or millions of dollars, it's just not worth it. It never is. and never will be. Right. What and you this... gotta do is go home and draw, make a, an effort effigy of them yeah yeah <laughs> set it on fire <laughs> set it on fire <laughs> maybe that will relieve your your anger yeah i don't know that it, you know that's the thing about i don't know like I, I have a i can i definitely can let shit go like i definitely like in the grand scheme of things can let shit go but that's more of a developed skill i mean there's there's it was a skill i had to develop because you have to learn how to survive in this world you know yeah and like when you put a lot of faith in people and you get burned at any level, you know, I don't know if you, if, you know, some things you can let go easier than others, but you know, it is difficult to deal with that part of the human experience, you know, of just feeling betrayed or whatnot. And it, yeah. if you're, I don't know if it's just for creative people, but like, if you have a intense imagination, you know, you can really smolder in that for well beyond, you know, the amount of time that it really you know, the, the burn, depending on the burn, you know what I mean? But yeah, I know yeah. that I've definitely had to, um, you know, learn to meditate and get yeah. my, you know, inner you have peace to together. Find another way. You got to find a way to, to vent that anger in a way that doesn't hurt you. Yeah. If it, if it hurt the person who wronged you, maybe that would be justified. But yeah. even if it did that and you still lost your job, it's just not worth losing your job, losing your show, losing things mm-hmm. to, to say to be able to say that sentence to somebody. So yeah. maybe you make him really angry and you go, great, I made him really angry. What do you get from for that? Nothing, yeah. but maybe your show canceled. You know, it's just... It feels good in the short term, but in the long it does term, feel you're good really fucking you yourself over, yeah. You know, it's like somebody who, who kills somebody in a moment of, of, of rage, you know, like jealousy or whatever. Right. And, and they know they're not going to get... They don't think they can't possibly get away with it sometimes. They do these in the open... Mm-hmm. They they just took away their entire life mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to satisfy one moment of anger. It's just crazy, and it's it's hard not to to want to vent. It's but you got to not, especially in show business. You can't vent. You never know who's going to be the next boss that you have. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you vent to somebody who's just somebody's assistant, and they end up running the the next project you're doing for the network. Yeah, and, they, and like life hell for you. I've had that happen too. I've had. I've had somebody at, at Disney and I won't mention the guy's name, but he hated me because of something that had happened between us and he did everything he could to screw up my career. He ended up being the head development guy at Disney. So he just ruined everything I did, everything I tried to do at Disney. He just ruined it. So it couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my thought was, I wish I'd never been so offensive to him. Mm-hmm. I couldn't take it back. He, he didn't want an apology. He wanted to ruin my career. And then, you know, you're also dealing with a lot of thin-skinned people that have egos, you know, so it's like a double-edged sword, you know, like, um, 
And they always say that, you know, like be be great to everyone because you never know, like the person that you're, that's a reader, you know, in the, in the production room with you, you know, like maybe the head of the studio in like five years, you have mm -hmm. no idea how it happens, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. And then there are things, so, you, you know, also I, I, I mentioned that I did Beverly Hills Cop and mm -hmm. I, I converted from a lightly humorous dramedy mainly a drama with a humorous idea about a, a Detroit cop having to work in Beverly Hills with their cops. Yeah. Um, but I, in as the case, I, I was obsequious. I finally did it their way. I, you know, I, I didn't want to do it. I said, hey, I don't have time for it. And I did it anyhow. I wrote it for them, mm -hmm. got it done. It made them a ton of money and they never did repay me with a favor. Mm -hmm. And they said they would, they never did. They never, I think they thanked me but they never gave me any money, any money. They, they didn't give me a car. Mm -hmm. You think that you guy, you, you just, it became the biggest comedy they had ever done. Biggest movie comedy Paramount had ever done. Mm -hmm. I was expecting them to give me a Porsche or something, maybe a Rolls Royce. What and kind of Porsche me, were you thinking? <laughs> like a, a 911. A 911 Turbo, something like that. Yeah, it's a mahogany yeah. steering wheel, uh -huh, leather seats, right. leather interior. Absolutely, yeah, totally. I saw the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> But they didn't give me not. They gave me nothing. They gave me mm -hmm. nothing, and they never did repay the favor. And it was a favor because I didn't want to do it. And I turned it down, and there wasn't any significant money in it for me to do. And I was already running Cheers at the time, so I had a really good job. I didn't need to use my extra off time mm -hmm. to fix their. Damn you had movie. a Rolls Royce at the time, right? Didn't you own yeah, a Rolls Royce at some point? I, I think I may have owned one then. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, oh, whatever. It's crazy. By the way, I'll also tell you. Rolls Royce are kind of a kick to have sometimes and people will kind of, you know, look at you in special ways. It's like driving that. a but boat. It feels like you're it's on not, a ship. Yeah, but it's big and it's not worth it. And also, uh, Jim Brooks was driving his 12-cylinder um, Jaguar, which they made for a while, which really was a hot Jaguar. Mm -hmm, and yeah. he came back after eating and went to the Jaguar and, and there were muggers waiting at his jaguar for him because they knew he, it was a rich guy's going to come get in this car exactly and they mugged they mugged him and scared the, scared the, the you know him to death because they, they had guns and everything you know and he was really scared that he was going to die so jim brooks this is funny thing about jim he went out and bought himself an old buick electra mm -hmm. a used one an old mm -hmm. used one yeah he started driving that for years for me i can't yeah you know sometimes money is a drag you know sometimes money gives you responsibility and it gives you envy from other people and mm -hmm. sometimes jealousy oh, envy for sure yeah oh, absolutely but i found when i had a lot of money because I, I told you at one point i was making over a million dollars a year for about yeah. eight years so that's yeah. a lot of money yeah um that is a lot not, of money. not not a lot of money compared to what sam simon made but right or jim brooks but it was a lot still of money. That's, that's a good but, amount yeah yeah but um it was the worst time of my life really yeah Gosh, when I when I first when I ran into some money problems, which I did when I told I've told everybody now at fifty, you, you, you kind of mm -hmm. hit that wall where you can't get jobs anymore. And I was spending every penny I made because my agent told me you'll work for, as long as you want to work. Was basically right. told me you could have a lobotomy tomorrow and I can still get you job jobs for the rest of your life. Yeah. Total lie, total lie. I, he was just blowing smoke up my ass. Yeah, I mean, but, there's no permanence. Yeah, no. I, I don't know why he did that. That was a very hurtful mm -hmm. thing. And I spent money and never saved anything. The money would come in a million dollars a year would be gone every uh -huh. year. Uh -huh. So um, at some point, 
I didn't get jobs for a while and I lost a big property that I had with a big house and uh, other things. And, and I'm waiting to get another job. I'm waiting to hit bombs. Kind of like you're in a plane and it, it's dipping down because it hit an air pocket mm-hmm. and you wait for it to hit bottom to where it'll take off again. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how you feel. And I'm falling and falling and falling. Mm. And that was like, and by the way, then I did hit bottom and I got a job for about eight hundred thousand dollars, you know, like a big job. So. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because was that the house? I, one time you mentioned you had a house that had like twelve bathrooms. Is that the house you're referring to? Yeah. Big, <laughs> big house. It had a guest house. It had all these bathrooms. I think I told you that the the the, the um, family room or the entertainment room where we had the big TV was so far from the kitchen. That you couldn't get down to the kitchen and back during the commercials. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, people like I didn't go, hear that, but that's crazy. Uh, people like to go get snacks during commercials, but you couldn't do it because you couldn't make it to the to the kitchen and back in the time the commercials ran. Let me ask you this, man, because you know I, there's few people who have had that experience, and everybody thinks it's going to be the most amazing thing. And like you're saying now that like it wasn't really what it was all cracked up to be when you're in a huge house like that is it like 12 bathrooms i mean did you have enough people to fill were you like housing a lot of people or was it you know we had necessary visited. no because I, I i at the time she she had uh, two daughters that i that i didn't adopt but i took care of you mm-hmm. know, as my as my own mm-hmm. um and uh, so we only really needed two rooms plus our rooms. We only needed three rooms, but I don't remember how many really. It's so many uh, bedrooms. And uh, we let people stay with us. I mean, people, you know, friends and family would just come and want to stay because it was a nice property and had a beautiful view and we had a swimming pool. And but you're you know, like working all the time, right? Yeah, and I'm time. not even home, so I don't even know what's going on. I know my, my wife's letting people stay there and, uh, and you know, I, I didn't mind because I thought I was going to work forever, like my agent said. So yeah. I, I was out working, working, working. I come home with this really pretty woman who was my yeah. wife, and mm-hmm. it was cool until I ran out of money, and then she just divorced me. So, like, when you, I mean, so you're working, so she's doing all the shopping. Here's the thing: I have to always wrap my mind about, like, I always liked big properties growing up, but then at a certain point, I realized, like the furniture is living a better life in that property than you are because yeah. it's like you have to fill all the rooms with all these couches and like fucking all this yeah, stuff yeah, you know yeah. what i mean yeah you have to furnish all the rooms and you gotta when people stay you feed them <laughs> so yeah there's it, 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 a lot of burden to having a lot of money and one of the people i i honestly i know a lot of people who made a, a huge fortunes and 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 smaller fortunes too in, in show business and none of them seem happy to me. I don't know any happy people. The happiest guy I know is the guy who cleans my house. Uh-huh. I swear that's true. The guy who cleans my house is the happiest guy I've, I've known. Uh-huh. Everybody else seems to be troubled and, and all these people with all this money are so miserable, so troubled. And as much money as they have, they should have made more like I did with The Simpsons. So uh-huh. I sold my share and I got screwed royally. Uh-huh. I, I still had a lot of money and, you know, I, but it, it, it depressed me and made me so angry that I had to go into therapy for a while to deal with that. Um, 
it's money. It's like weird. It's really, it's not a good thing. And then you have people come in with their hand out and it's not like you want to turn them away, but, and when you have a house like that, you're basically running a small industry because you have to have it manicured. Everything has to be cleaned. You know, it's a giant amount of work. I've, I I had two, I had two full-time nannies, a housekeeper, a secretary who wasn't my secretary. My wife's had the secretary. I didn't need secretary. I had secretaries down at work. Mm. Um, had a lot of people. I was putting a lot of money every month, and I wasn't thinking about it at all. I just didn't think about it. I'm going to work forever. My wife likes to spend a lot of money. Mm. You know, we're all we're doing all right doing this, and then it, then the property. What happened is that that's when the property values crashed when the Japanese were buying a lot of speculative land in, mm-hmm. that, in our area and then they sold it all and then pulled out and then everything crashed. And so I lost that property and that's mm-hmm. when she divorced me. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Like r- like very soon after or just, was it? Uh, right away, immediately, immediately. Wow. Yeah. Was that up in Mulholland or something you said? Yeah, it was at the top of Mulholland where it had a view of both of the city, LA, and the valley. Okay, you're on that ridge. Right on the very top, very top. So you pay, I paid a lot for the land Mm -hmm. and the house was big. So in those days, relatively, it was a relative small fortune I paid for that house. Mm -hmm. And and that house was responsible for me losing a lot of money. I lose the house and I put a million dollars worth of renovations into the house and I lost the house so I lost what I put it for down payment I lost what I paid out to it and I lost all the improvements I made yeah that's an interesting thing too because people say like when you have money you know you invest in properties and so that sounds like a sound investment you know you're putting all this money into a place yeah yeah you got to talk to people who really know about investing because yeah that's what we always hear you never lose money when you buy property not in the long run, but in the short run, you if you very if you're extended to the limits of your wealth with the kinds of property you bought, and then there's a, a depression or a crash or you know property markets just crash, which happen periodically. Uh, and nobody told me that. I, I didn't know those things. I thought property was just good always because mm-hmm. my, my parents had always made money on their property. Yeah, they're not making it anymore. But I got to the point where it all crashed. And nobody wanted to buy it because of the market crashing. Mm-hmm. And so the bank took it back. And the bank took it back and got a million dollars worth of renovation with it. Dang. And my down payment, which was plenty. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you know, you can lose money on properties. Yeah, it's just... Um, and, you know, a lot of... Uh, you know, I think you were saying you didn't grow up with a lot of means, you know, so you're not really protected in that way of like having, you know, financial advisors that you can really trust that the family has been, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. We didn't know, I didn't know anything about how to handle my money. I made all the wrong choices about handling my money. I, at one point I was so successful. I gave up my agent and that my cousin who wanted the job made him my agent because he was good at talking to people. Uh Huge mistake, huge, like disastrous he just alienated so many people and said so many wrong things, made so many bad deals for me, just screwed my career. Not only was I hitting the wall because of my age, now I have an agent who's really my cousin, who's not even really an agent. I just did all the wrong things. I should have had somebody say, look, you got to have a great agent. Don't let your cousin talk you into it just because he wants the money. I didn't have anybody to do that. So I was just giving people money, 
helping people out, spending too much money, letting my wife spend whatever she wanted. And that's how you go through $8 million in eight years. You know, mm-hmm. it's gone. You're mm-hmm. making it and it's gone as quickly as you make it. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to read that about athletes in particular, how so many of them ended up kind of destitute late in their lives. Yeah. And I always wonder, how could you make millions and end up destitute? Now I know mm-hmm. you can spend a million a year if you, if you, with not looking that impressive, mm-hmm. that big house, Rolls Royce, you know, maybe those things looked impressive, but. Who, who cares? Did you travel at all during this time or were you just working too much? I was working an awful lot, but I think we traveled. I think we, uh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, we traveled. We went places. We went to Australia and New Zealand. And uh, I think we went to Europe somewhere. I don't know. We, we did things. Did you, um, were you like a finance guy though? Like, did you, when you yeah. had the money, did you hang out with people to try to keep? No, I, I, I was too busy writing and, and producing television i didn't keep track of anything i my wife did all the spending for everything she just mm-hmm. controlled all the, she wrote all the checks and the bills though we we had a bookkeeper too yeah obviously when you're that rich we had she didn't she would write the checks and then send them to my bookkeeper who would then do the you know the, the ledger and all that stuff we didn't do anything we had you know there was people waiting on us for everything and i'm telling you it doesn't make you happy Mm-hmm. I've been through it. It does not make you happy. And all my friends I know who became very rich never changed. They were the same people. The ones who were happier before they were rich remained happier than most people, just like they were. Mm-hmm. The ones who were miserable seemed at least as miserable or more miserable when they had money. So mm-hmm. I've never seen money do good for anybody, honestly. I've never seen it. But it's better to know, like, I'm approaching old age. I don't want to not have some money saved because mm-hmm. there is a point where you need it just for necessities. So I'm not saying it's not, not good to have money. What I'm saying is invest your money smartly. Even if you have to hire somebody who is your investor. And that's another invest thing. Your money right wisely because expect the 52 year own guild's going to tell you you're washed up, take your pension. But that's the thing too, is like, you could try to do those steps. Like I had a friend of mine whose dad, um, he he got injured in a construction job and got a huge payout huge and um and i was asking him because you know like i would hang out with them i've actually you know what's odd is i've had really wealthy friends that like that's kind of also taught me a little bit about money because i've seen like what you're saying like one of them ended up with a crazy drug addiction and had b- big mm. problems because of that you know because his family had a lot of money and this particular person you know, I had a lot of anger in the family because his dad was kind of curmudgeonly because he was always in pain, you know, so he was, he had a really short temper, but you know, they're a great family. I love those. I love them. And, uh, you know, I'm still really good friends with them, but I was talking to him not too long ago about, you know, like what happened to the money, you know, how did it, you know, how did you guys like, cause they lived in a very, a good amount of, they had a nice, they weren't like gated community. Like they had a nice house and a nice neighborhood, but it wasn't like they, you know, we're living super high on the hog. They had a lot of shit in their house, you know, a lot of, like a deep fryer. You had a deep fryer and he would like fry ice cream and shit like that when I was a kid. And I was like, this is crazy, you know? But he said that the, the investors that they got ruined it. Like they didn't make wise investments and they, you know, like, uh. so I listen to stuff like that, like Shaq talking about how, like when he got money, he interviewed different investors and they're like, well, if you give me 50 million, I can make you 150 million or something. And he's like, well, then how come you don't have 150 million already? Like if you have the ideas, you know, 
And so he went with people who just, you know, he went, he said that he went with like old Jewish guys that were really conservative with their money. And, you know, and this is actually a good, not to bring up like any kind of religion or that kind of stuff, but you are Jewish and people have the assumption that if you're Jewish and you're in Hollywood, that you not only get all the money, but you have all the power and you run Hollywood. You know what I mean? And that's not really the case, you know? Um, no, it's, there's, a, there's a totally false stereotype that there are a lot of, of Jewish people in show business. Mm -hmm. There are also a lot of black people in show business, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the music part of the business. Yeah, a lot, um, of, a lot of white people. Yeah, a lot of white people. A lot, a lot of, of Asian people. people. A lot There's of a Asian lot of Asian people, people for sure. That's what I was say. So it, it's everybody. Everybody's in the business. Everybody, everybody, because show business is one of those things that everybody wants to be in. And it's huge that, payoffs. You know, these hundred million dollar movies. People make a. Uh, you know billions of dollars like so you get china investing a lot of money and you know what i mean there may not be on screen you know what i mean not everybody is on yeah. screen all the time but you know there are people in the background i think being yeah, in the background yeah, yeah. kind of is a little bit not background of the films or whatever but like being behind the scenes and actually like understanding like all the mechanics of it and making being producers and stuff like that is actually a, in some ways a better position than being in front of the camera yeah yeah but i think Cook, so Dan huh? Cook, he Dan Cook, he he put his brother in jail because his brother had embezzled millions of dollars from him. You know, when he was at yeah. the height of his comedy career, you know, and then you know you think you can trust the ones closest to you, but it breeds a lot of embassy or embassy, a lot of envy and a lot of jealousy. Yeah, this know? was it. It was my cousin. Mm -hmm. I let him be my agent. He was terrible. Mm -hmm. He did everything wrong, and then he never really thanked me. At some point, when. Uh, when my career was really in the toilet because of him, he said, I can't do this anymore because it's getting too hard. I've done, I've done my best. I've, <laughs> yeah. done, I've done my job. <laughs> I've done my job. I've ruined your, I've ruined your career. But he said, you know, his excuse was, he says, it's just too much work. It's too hard for me. It's too much work. I don't want to work this way. <laughs> but it was already because he had, he had made oh. a lot of money off of me getting his 10% of what I was making millions in. Yeah. And for, for that, he only had to make a phone call here or there. So he was getting like 10 million for making a 10 minute phone call. That's pretty big. And at that time, your name is like really like getting you any kind of like yeah. billing, right? So he's not really doing, he's not schlubbing around trying to like boost someone who's just coming up or something. He didn't like have that. to do any, All he had to do is when somebody wanted me, they would check, they would just call my agent, which he was. Mm -hmm. So he just had to wait for the calls to come and the call would come. He'd have to handle the call. And for that, he'd make his 10% of a million dollars, you know? Mm -hmm. And he said, that's the kind of work he wanted to do. He well, wanted to actually try to find me work, you know? He yeah. said, that's too much. That, so at the end, he said, it's just too hard, too much work. You need too much time. And it's just not worth my time. And I'm like, you asshole, it's not mm -hmm. worth your time. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, my, you're my cousin. You see, one of his selling points was, he said, you can get a lot of agents, but you're never going to get an agent who loves you. He mm -hmm. said, I love you. You're my cousin. That was total bullshit, and I bought it. I bought so much bullshit. Don't buy, don't buy bullshit, folks. Don't. That's what you bought with eight million dollars is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, you yeah. bought a lot of bullshit. It sounds so like. So be be careful. People want to cheat you. People want to take advantage of you. People want. It's tough out there. Mm -hmm. So what you got to do is surround yourself with good people, your friends, your family, and and then be a little tough. Maybe it's tough love, but you got to get a good manager or, or financial advisor or somebody not, you don't have to sign over 
your checks to him, let him write the checks or her write the checks. Uh, but you need real advice. And I didn't, I never had real advice. I had all this bullshit stuff. Oh, I made so many mistakes. Don't make, that's why one of the things I wanted to do a section on don't make the mistakes I made. That should be the title of one of our podcasts. Don't make the mistakes I made. No, all right. I I so many. Yeah, yeah, it could be this one. Yeah, I yeah. made so many mistakes. I, uh, you know, somebody said you could do this movie or this movie. I think about it and, and and obsess over it for weeks and weeks and months. Finally, choose the movie and it would be the wrong one. Maybe the one, maybe <laughs> the one that tanked. Yeah. The one that goes through the ceiling, like Beverly Hills Cop, was one I didn't want to do, and I just did it as a favor. Just kind of threw it out there, mm -hmm. and it becomes the biggest. The guy who got credit for writing it, who didn't write it, because I wrote the comedy version of this dramatic series. Right. He wrote, I mean, a movie that he wrote, got an Oscar nomination. Mm -hmm. And then he got a, a three-picture deal from, from Disney based on getting the Oscar nomination. And he didn't do any of the stuff that, won, that made it win, not, uh, get, that made it not get the nomination, but he got all the rewards for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, like William Golden said, no, no one knows what they're doing, you know, and it's, yeah. I mean, part, it, part, it sounds but like part he, of that is true. Yeah, but when he said that, he meant me, he, you know, <laughs> he meant me personally, but he was kind enough not to say that. Ken Essen has no idea what he's doing. But you got in on kind of like a wing and a prayer. I mean, your, your, your entry in was not, you know, like, it's not like you did the Yale route and your family was, there's a... People kind of, you know, they know that there's connections in the industry. And it's not like those people can't also have uh, things go royally uh, south or whatever. But, you know, like when you get in, you don't know who to trust. You don't know what questions to ask. And then it all happens so quickly. You're just riding this wave, you know. Yeah. And then by the time you start to kind of get your bearings, you know what I mean? Things are shifting. And then when you find yourself in a category going from, I don't know, how much were you making on your construction job before you got into the, when, before you got hired on tax? Um, like, no, I was, I was working on spec. It was a house that my brother and I bought. That was oh, a there you go. trash, terrible house. And he and I were, were remodeling it. So I made nothing. Oh, okay. Well, so yeah. So you went from making nothing <laughs> to making, you know, what were you, I think yeah. you said your first year you made how much? In my first year, I probably made a hundred thousand dollars, but that Which was huge great. to me. That was yeah. huge compared to making nothing and suddenly you make a hundred thousand the next year you're making 300 and the next year you're making if you calculate inflation that's like a million or something right now right like so like in terms of like how know. the spending the the power of the dollar at that point so yeah i mean you know nobody's really this is like why i like talking to you about stuff and actually you you asked me one time what's the most important thing you can do with money and i did not have the right answer and you corrected me and oh, i thought that was fun. a very interesting perspective is you you said when when you have a lot of money, what's you know like how did how did you phrase it? You said what is the thing? What's the be, what is money when you have a lot of money? What is it really good for? And I was like, I, oh, don't I know. remember what I said. Yeah, I know the answer. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, I don't know, travel or something. And then you said, healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah, and that's not something that, as a young man. It may not be on the forefront of your mind, you know what I mean? Because you feel kind of invincible, but yeah, because yeah. when you get to be old and you need a lot of attention, and even when you're young, you can get into situations where you're going to need medical sure. attention. And even and most insurances still have huge 
deductibles or big deductibles. Yeah. But maybe you don't have insurance. So, you, you know, because insurance is expensive too when you get older, yeah. too, those things. And then you you don't want to end up in a state home someday as an old person in, in on, you know, living in the county uh, old folks home. So with abusive people, you know. Yeah. Like so that, yeah. you got to, you got to, you got to think about the money. And, and we're artists, so we don't want to think about the money. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I just didn't think about it. I just, I just kept plowing ahead. Mm -hmm. Some guy blowing smoke up my ass saying, you'll work forever. Mm -hmm. So I'm figuring, well, no, who cares? So I screwed up there. I screwed up that. But if I could do it over again, I'd be very rich today, which, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't, by the way, I, I don't obsess over it anymore. I, I got over the, the Simpsons thing. It wasn't mm -hmm. easy, but I got past it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, excuse me, I'm going to throw my computer against yeah. the wall. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would be a great advisor for somebody because I know all the mistakes not to make. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't actually tell them what to buy or not to buy. But if somebody, one of you guys who makes it really big and you're looking for somebody who's been through it, made all the mistakes, mm -hmm. I'd be glad to, to give you advice and tell you which mistakes I made and, and look at your life and tell you, you know, this I actually think that's terrible. more valuable now. You know what I mean? Like, sure, having a lot of money is great, and I, and I'm, I could, I totally respect that. You know, not only the conflict it caused in your life, thinking about you know what could have been, but just the recognition of like, oh well, there's also these real practical things that we, you know, you have to be pragmatic about certain life things because you don't know what can happen at any point. You know. Yeah. But. I think that that information, this is actually, I think when we first started talking about doing a podcast, this is the kind of stuff, you know, cause I knew some of it, I'm learning stuff all the time when we talk, but you know, it is to me, um, cause you're not a cautionary tale. I mean, you're still doing, you didn't you know, get crazy drug. You didn't go on a crazy drug binge or, you know what I mean? Like, you know, any of that kind of crazy shit. So yeah. you're still, you still have your mental faculties. You're able to produce work. You're, you produce high, high caliber work. You know what I mean? Yeah. So and, that and in I, itself is great. I taught for 11 years yeah. at, a, at a university for 11 years. And uh, one of the things I found out from teaching is you can't teach talent. And I've mm -hmm. said this before, you can, you can hone talent, you can grow talent, you can mm -hmm. refine talent, which is your job as a teacher. But you can't make it from when it's not there. You can't create talent. Mm -hmm. You only expand talent, mm -hmm. you know? And I found that out from, from teaching. Yeah. So if you like, if you're thinking you want to be this great comedy writer and you sit down to write something and it's just awful, you, nobody's going to be able to make you into a great writer. But if you write something that's pretty good, some people like it, they don't like it, but it's pretty good then there's a possibility that somebody can hone your, your craft, mm -hmm. your, your talent into, into a big money maker. You know? Yeah. And if, if you write something good, there's no guarantees. You know what I mean? Like that's the other thing about it. Oh yeah. You can write the best thing ever. Some guy uh, wrote Confederacy of Dunces is a book mm -hmm. and he won the Pulitzer prize for it after he killed himself. He killed himself because he couldn't get one person interested in publishing it and he killed himself which is terrible obviously he was a very disturbed person to do that i guess technically he didn't win the Pulitzer. <laughs> oh, yeah. i mean the book did well, but the book yeah did. yeah but his mother is the one who sold his mother after after he died his mother then made it her what my point is you can write 
something brilliant. This is a brilliant book mm-hmm. and nobody liked it. Mm-hmm. And then the mother tries to sell it and she sells it and it goes into print and it wins the Pulitzer Prize. And, and he probably never wanted to hire her as his manager or anything. She made yeah, an offer yeah. and was like, probably what you're yeah. doing, you know. But, but, but my point is you can write something brilliant and not yeah. anything. You know what, though? Like, this is a thing that I think is also important. You know, not only are you sharing your, your, your success stories, you know what I mean, which is always cool to hear. I mean, you have a lot of, you have a lot of successes. I mean, like, like you said, not only have you had, like, two simultaneous Emmy Award-winning shows being filmed at the same time, which is really rarefied air, you know what I mean? Um, but you've had, you know, the highs and the lows. But what's cool about you, and I don't, I don't know if this is true for people who also get a windfall. Like you said, money can't make people happy. If you're happy, you're happy. If you're not happy, you're going to be miserable with money anyway. But yeah. you don't have a bitterness toward up and coming writers. You know what I mean? You're open to their talents too. You know what I mean? There yeah. are people who have either, and I, maybe that's from people who weren't successful and thought that they should be. And I, I've, and I've noticed this across a lot of different, you know, g- genres of life, not just writing, but other things. There are people who champion other people, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And their opportunities and their abilities and their talent to, to, and their enthusiasm to go forward. And then there's people who will just stomp on you because yeah. they didn't, they didn't get to where they right. want to be. Or maybe that was people, their model. I've heard people say it. Look, I didn't get that w- opportunity. Why Why should this person get that opportunity? I've heard that said. Oh, I've and had that happen to me. All the time. Up. Yeah. Why, why Why should they get what I didn't have? Mm-hmm. You go, well, just because you've got a raw deal. Why would that mean everybody has to get a raw deal? I don't get that. I don't understand how it makes it better for you. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't help you anymore. So well, yeah. why, why, what's the point of the jealousy or the, or the anger or the whatever it is that, not envy or it's I, I know exactly what you're saying your money is an evil thing money's mm-hmm. terrible but you need it to, to kind of guarantee your survival mm-hmm. how much do you need that's the question yeah it depends on what you need in life you know like what your lifestyle is what your- what i have now is all i need and i have a fraction of what i used to have mm-hmm. And it's all I need. I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm, uh, you know, my wife and I are happy. We, uh, we buy what we need when we want it. Last night was my birthday. So we went out and had lobster and, and steak, steak and lobster. Yeah. And it was very expensive and I, I did it. And, you know, it's like, uh, but I, I just have a fraction of the money I, I used to have. And you probably have better relationships. I mean, I'm guessing, you know what I mean? But based on what you were saying, like the people that were around you, at least the people now around you are around you because of what, you know, they want to be there. That's true. There's nobody around me now for my money. Cause mm-hmm. it's just, I'm just like lots of other people. I, I I'm comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. I, but I'm not a wealthy man. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. So nobody's doing it for the money. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's part of it. You know, that's the, cause it, it probably people look at it too. Like, Oh, you're just writing, like you know, you're having fun, you know. It's like, well, no, this is actually a difficult thing to do, and not not that many people can come up with these things, you know. So, yeah, that's another thing for for people to know. Writing for a living is a good way to make a living because a lot of the time it's enjoyable, but a large part of it is really hard because you're there late all day and night, and you have to fix things, and there's the pressure that 
did you fix it or did you not fix it? Uh, you know, will it play on the air? Um, there's just so, and then you kind of write every time you finish a script, you already have another one you're writing. There's no break. You just keep writing and writing and writing and writing. And I think it's, I think it's, that had, sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds like great. Yeah. No, like I'm like trying to find out the problem. Trying to find right the bad, bad part. Of it. <laughs> yeah, I I'm saying like, that like, sounds cool. If you had, if you had sex every single night of your life, mm-hmm. there'd be a point where you just, one night you just want to say, listen, dear, I just don't feel like it. Wouldn't there? Yeah. No, I mean, I oh. get, yeah, you need a break from everything. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing, but yeah, I do. I do like, you love to write. I like, I like the work. Yeah. You, you would be, you would be great in the business. Yeah. Cause you love to work. You never complain about the hours and you're prolific. You write fast. Mm. So, um, gosh, you would do really well. So get in the business already. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, I was out there doing my thing and like, you know what I don't enjoy though is the sycophantic, like, you know, I'm actually becoming more, I've, I've built up a better shield for that kind of stuff, but uh-huh. the, the positioning and people trying to tear you down. And I, when I was younger and I was, you know, trying to make my way, it didn't really click to me that like, oh, that's part of the game. Like I didn't understand the game and I didn't enjoy the game. I just thought it's all about your quality of work. And if you're just a good worker and all that stuff, you know, like kind of naive thinking. And now yeah. I look at the game as being like kind of a, fun part of it you know what I mean because it's like yeah I have the talent to do the work I can do the work but now there's this other element to where it's like you're playing chess and that seems like oh okay that but you know it's chess with high stakes and you know there are things that happen you know that you know but But I'm more prepared now actually that that's kind of fun when I say like they never tell anybody to go fuck themselves but there are ways to deal with things that are more creative like you can manipulate them by by saying instead interesting idea i'll think about it and you know you're not going to do it yeah but so so you're manipulating them you've taken the power Mm -hmm. because you have manipulated them to get what you want Mm -hmm. by not telling them to go fuck themselves Mm -hmm. yeah you know so and i think like when i was younger i would look at that type of thinking and be like there's a problem with that type of thinking but now i appreciate that type of thinking i appreciate the idea that like yeah you can actually gain power without gaining resentment in some way or you know you can get resentment and still use the resentment to your advantage you know like things like that you know like i've learned to be like okay there's a game here and like the game of it is actually pretty fascinating as well it's different than being talented or you know putting out great work that's That's why bad work survives and it does really well you know yeah because they have sometimes people with bad work are really good at the rest of the game Mm -hmm. and that's how the bad work gets out there but but playing the game as being a showrunner, uh, you you need to know something about psychology. You, mm-hmm. it's, most of what I know about psychology is instinctive, or from my mistakes. The mm-hmm. Barry Kemp telling them to go fuck themselves and getting our pilot canceled, mm-hmm. and and my dealing with Fox and with uh, with 20th Century Fox and The Simpsons and Jim Brooks, and I've learned from all that stuff. Ah, uh, it's t- difficult, but but as much as I've learned about the psychology of keeping a career going, I also learned more about writing. Mm-hmm. And as good as I, I was a good writer from day one, the f- very first script I ever wrote won the Writers Guild Award. This probably never happened to anybody else. I bet I'm the only one who's ever done that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I didn't get better, but I got faster. So I didn't make as many mistakes. I learned how to do it more consistently. And I, I learned a lot of things that honed my career, my, my talent, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's interesting too, like um, that, the you know, doing what you did in school for sure. I know I heard this a lot, but you know, you'll hear it no matter where you go. And you know, that's the other thing. So let me finish my thought is people tell you like, oh, you think your first script's going to get you this, this, and this, you know what I mean? That's the thing that they drill into your head yeah, in school. It can't happen. It can't yeah, happen. it's never going to happen. That doesn't happen. And it's like, well, here's an example where that happened. It you know did happen. I mean? my, yeah. very fir- my very first script I ever wrote, mm-hmm. my very first script I ever wrote got me my interview at Taxi. Mm-hmm. And my very first professional script, which I wrote for Taxi, won the Writers Guild Award. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen like that. I wrote two scripts and I was already the, the story editor on, on Taxi. And I'd only mm-hmm. written two scripts. Yeah, that must have pissed some people off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I don't think everybody knew that. I don't think any, I didn't really talk about that, those sort of mm-hmm. things. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it, it was really a fast rise for me. I went from a guy who's a freelance writer to running Taxi within three years and then running Cheers and just was so easy for me and my agent saying you can get a lobotomy and i'll get to work the rest of your life i just thought it was a easy thing and i was going to be comfortable all my life and Mm -hmm. i didn't worry about anything i just didn't worry i just did it i I totally can identify with that you know what i mean i had like pretty quick you know not in the same way but like for me not expecting to do anything with writing and then getting published and you know, yeah. like people liking my work and, you know, it's like, you just think, oh, this is how it is. Like that other people say it's difficult, but it's not difficult. This is not yeah. difficult for me. This is easy. It wasn't difficult. <laughs> you know? Well, the whole skating thing wasn't difficult for you, right? You, you no, that was very difficult. Ta- no, no, that was, oh, I fucking, thought it, that was a real struggle. <laughs> oh, I, oh I, <laughs> yeah. I thought it happened for you fast. I thought you started. You, no, you, no, no. I actually was probably the last person to get sponsored and, oh. Once you get to a certain point, sure, people have fans or whatever, and they they root for your more of your success. But on your road up, there's always going to be people who are right there with you who don't want that to yeah, happen. Yeah, oh, they don't want you to yeah. succeed because they want the jobs and things you get. And then and there's but, gatekeepers who aren't trying to be in that level. They don't have that type of like. They're not like there's photographers and filmers and skateboarding who also don't want you to succeed. But that was because I didn't understand how to comport myself. I didn't understand like how to project a certain type of confidence. I was very negative actually, and like complained a lot. (laughs) And like, you know what I mean? I learned from that, you know, I I learned how to like not, you know, present myself that way. Cause I did, when I did, like when I was talking about earlier, when I did go and start filming kids, you know, to give them the opportunities that I didn't have, the kids that would complain a lot, even though they were talented, I was like, fuck, I don't want to spend a lot of time filming with this dude. Like, it's just annoying. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'd rather hang out with this other kid that's quiet and just kills it. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like so much easier. Yeah, but, you know, that, but that's, that's another thing I'd say, I, and it's in my book that I yeah. haven't published yet, is that everybody in the business loves confidence. We love confident mm-hmm. people. We love when somebody says something with confidence, when they mm-hmm. do it with confidence. We hate cockiness. Yeah, it's so, hard to know the difference, though. It's yeah, you got to be able. You got to know. You got to know how to do the difference. But when you're confident and not cocky, people love that. They just want to line up to kiss your ass. So later on, it. when it became when I started getting into writing and I was getting all these opportunities in writing, 
I didn't care that much because it never was something that like skating was all I ever cared about. You know, like it was so important to me that people didn't want to give it to me. You know what I mean? Like it was desperation almost in, in a way, but with writing, it was like, I don't care if you don't like my stuff. It's not important to me whether yeah, you, I, I do it because I like it. You know what I mean? And if you don't like it, well then fuck you. <laughs> like I don't give a shit. And I still feel that way about writing. And so when I got to LA and I was doing the circuit, you know, not only did I have that experience in skateboarding and learn from it, but I also had already the attitude of like, you know, I don't know why I'm asking you if this is a good, not people like you, like pe with writers, like people I respect. Yes. I want their opinion on my work, but other people, when I give them my writing and I know that they don't write, you know, yeah. unless they're like a, a, have a very unique vision of some other form, you know, some like talented actor, talented, you know, director, you know, they understand story really well. I don't, I'm like, why am I asking you for your opinion about yeah. my work? This is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, the only, the only good thing from, from asking people like that, whose opinion you don't really care about emotionally or, or intellectually is that you, you want to eventually sell your work and you want as many people as possible yeah. to like it because you want, you want to succeed. Yeah. So if some person who doesn't really know anything about show business or writing or, and doesn't have a great opinion, still looks at your. Yeah, that's says, true. Oh, I really like that script. Yeah. You know, I've captured that group. Yeah. If that person says, I don't like your script, then you want to know why, because you want to capture that group too. You don't want any group slip by. If you, sure. if you, if you can hold on to somebody to increase your sales, you got to do it. And as long as it doesn't compromise your integrity and you know the purpose of your story, yeah. If you write something and somebody says I don't like it because I think you're totally wrong, I you know money is is beautiful and it always makes everybody happy, and I couldn't buy that. I, yeah. But I still wouldn't say you're a stupid idiot. No, That's, yeah. I, I don't think you know. I just think like now it's like I you know it's like when you have a certain amount of confidence in your work and you know other people are skilled at what they do so you know their opinion has a real weight because you're like okay yeah. this person understands it though that's what i mean it's like uh but i, I, but I disagree because i i think that i want everybody's opinion but yeah. I, I weigh in who they are if somebody gives me a bad response to it who i think is not very literate mm -hmm. i'm i would then think about well how can i get to that kind of person but i don't respect their opinion as much as i am trying to still keep the script that i wrote but make it sellable make it, mm -hmm. make it bring in income so i'm so those are the games we talk about the psychological yeah. games we're playing too so i get everybody's opinion i, just I mean i can see it has value but i don't try to let it influence the work if i know something like I, well, if i do. yeah you should know. never let it compromise the integrity of your own work right but sometimes somebody gives you a bad idea, a really bad idea. And if you say, I wonder why they gave me that bad idea. And then you figure out, oh, they don't get this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can fix yeah, that thing it can be helpful, yeah. without even um, affecting what you've already written. But now you've captured that person and that group that that person represents. Mm -hmm. So there's that thinking. you got to be thinking about all these things. You want to be a successful writer. Uh, you know, the thing about writing is if you're just like a writer and you sit in your room and you try to imagine all these things in the world, 
it doesn't make your writing that much better. But when you get out there and live a little bit and you see like, I've seen a lot of crazy shit. So like, I, it's easy for me to put that crazy or hear voice, like not hear voices like a crazy person, but like distinct, you know, ways of speaking like street lingo yeah, or, absolutely. you know, high, high, you know, highbrow lingo or, you know, I've been in these different worlds. So I have some tactile, you know, like details that, you know, an imaginative, imaginative person who's just reading books to try to put, you know, that's the thing, you know, like, and I don't want to go too far on this, but, you know, I'll, you can definitely tell when a reader or a writer is writing from things they've seen on TV, like experiences yeah. that in their voice doesn't really come through because right. it's not like a lived or an experienced kind of experience. Absolutely. You can tell the difference between, I can tell the difference between somebody who's writing from life experience as mm -hmm. opposed to what they've learned from television and movies and books. Mm -hmm. But you can learn everything you really need to know from television, movies, and books, but, but it doesn't have the authentic, authenticity mm -hmm. of, of actually living those things. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I said. Those of you who are older, you have an advantage in a way. You, yeah. have, more, you have more material to work with. Those of you who are younger, you have the advantage, you have more time in your favor. So mm -hmm. everybody's got something. So yeah. buy my book. <laughs> All right. Yeah. They'll check the link. Yeah. So definitely. Yeah. And then, I, you I, know, it's, it's, yeah, it's not out yet, but when it's out, we'll tell you. Yeah. Anyhow, but, but it's almost 11 o'clock and you've got a big oh, okay. day Yeah, of course. So, so we got to call it quits. All right. Well, good deal. That was a good one. Um, got another one yeah. in the can. That was great. Yeah, yeah. That was nice. I think we had some really good stuff in there. Yeah uh yeah good yeah that was good yeah right, i enjoyed well, and i enjoy it i enjoy talking with you it's, it's, yeah it's a pleasure